This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 225th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and this episode is presented by the prime original series The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. From executive producers Amy Sherman Palladino and Daniel Palladino, and starring Rachel Brosnahan, Alex Borstein, and Tony Shalhoub. Consider it marvelous in all categories, including outstanding comedy series. My guest today is one of her generation's most respected actresses, having shined on screens big and small for the last 25 years. She first burst onto the scene at the age of 14 as high school student Angela Chase on ABC's My So-Called Life which ran from 1994 through 1995, and for which she was nominated for both an Emmy and a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Drama Series. Over the ensuing years, she starred in films such as 1994's Little Women, 1996's Romeo and Juliet, 1997's The Rainmaker, 2002's Best Picture Oscar-nominated The Hours, and 2005's Shop Girl. But it was for her portrayal of an autistic livestock industry expert in an HBO TV movie, 2010's Temple Grandin, that she received her greatest acclaim to that point, winning an Emmy, a Golden Globe, and a SAG Award for Best Actress in a Miniseries or TV Movie. But it is with a part that she started playing a year after that that she is, and may forever be, most closely associated. That of bipolar CIA officer Carrie Matheson on Showtime's Homeland, which recently wrapped its seventh season, and for which she has won two Emmys, two Golden Globes, a SAG Award, and a Critics' Choice TV Award for Best Actress in a Drama Series. I'm talking, of course, about the great Claire Danes. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Matt Bellany, our editorial director, to discuss a wild week on the business side of Hollywood, which could have major ramifications for the worlds of film and TV, and therefore for the Oscars and the Emmys. Matt, thanks for joining us. No problem. It has for some time now looked like all but a done deal, I think, that Disney would purchase most of 21st Century Fox's assets for $52.4 billion, but that now seems to be in jeopardy because of Comcast. What is going on here ahead of this, I guess, July 10th meeting where Fox shareholders are going to discuss their future? Well, it's a bidding war, really. I mean, Comcast, which is a media company about the same size as Disney and very similar. They have theme parks, movies, television networks. Comcast has come in with a bid that is about 19, 20% bigger than the Disney bid for Fox. And their bid is all cash, whereas the Disney bid is mostly stock. So this is essentially set off a war, and some analysts think that it could get to as high as $80 billion for these Fox assets. In this environment right now where every media company is trying to get bigger to compete with the Facebooks and Netflixes and Googles and Amazons, these digital behemoths that can buy and sell what they want, these Fox assets, which is basically the film studio, the television studio, networks like FX, Nat Geo, 
It doesn't include Fox News. Mm -hmm. It doesn't include sports and the Fox Broadcast Network. But they're pretty significant assets, especially overseas. And that's where Comcast really has been weak. They want to own more overseas. And the Fox stuff could give them that. So it's really a battle for the future of these networks and studios. And do you think, though, for Comcast, it's also sort of the the reason they're coming into this so aggressively is from a defensive place that they don't want to lose another major thing to Disney, which already has Pixar, Marvel, and Lucasfilm, and is just looking, you know, harder and harder to compete with. Maybe. I mean, they're they're about the same size. There is a personal angle here, and that the CEO of Comcast, Brian Roberts, has a big personal rivalry with Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney. They do not like each other, <laughs> but they also see the future, and the future is in scale. And these are assets that don't come along very often. I mean, the Murdochs have for years and years never been interested in selling, and for whatever reason maybe it's succession with his kids maybe it's he sees the writing on the wall he has now decided that this is something he wants to do so they've really it'd be irresponsible of them not to go for it and do you what's your gut tell you does would he would rupert murdoch rather be one of disney's biggest shareholders or get as much as he possibly can for 21st century fox Every indication we've seen is that Rupert would like a Disney deal. He sees that as a better home, and he sees Disney as a better shepherd for the assets. If you look at some of the synergies that might work well, I mean, Fox has the X-Men and Deadpool franchises, and Disney has Marvel, so... That would make sense. There could be a Deadpool movie with Spider-Man or with Iron Man or something like that. But Comcast also has theme parks. So a lot of the Fox assets could go in those theme parks. You know, it's a really interesting battle. The award space could also be impacted Mm -hmm. here because there's a lot of speculation as to what Disney would do with something like Fox Searchlight, which has really been nurtured under the Murdochs and allowed to take big risks. And it's paid off with a number of of best pictures picture winners most recently with Shape of Water. Absolutely. And would Disney be interested in an R-rated fable that doesn't play by a lot of the same rules that the Disney movies play by? Everything that Bob Iger has said is that he wants to preserve that culture and the creativity and I think a lot of the initiatives that Disney has, like a streaming service and other things, the Fox Searchlight movies would fit well within that, but for how long? You know, and then you think about the Emmy race as well. FX has become such a huge player in the Emmy race and has really built their brand on these risk-taking and edgy series. I don't know if Disney would have the appetite for that. I I gotta think they would. I think they wouldn't screw up that kind of brand. Right, right. But you never know. And, you know, Ryan Murphy, FX's biggest creator, and you know, 20th Century Fox's biggest creator. He saw what was going on, and he went to Netflix. Right. And we are gonna come to that in a second. But I just, I guess, in the meantime, the the fact is that until this is resolved with either Disney or Comcast. A lot of people who work for Fox are kind of in limbo, and I'm sure it's not great for morale when you don't know what's going to happen with your future, right? No, everybody we've spoken to, you know, is in this like waiting game, you know, especially the top executives where, you know, if you're running Fox as Stacey Snyder is, the Fox Film Studio, you're pretty sure your job is not going to exist if either Comcast or Disney buys Fox because they have their own film executive teams and the Fox Studio will likely become a glorified label under those executives and why would Stacey Snyder want to do that? So, you know, that's led to a lot of uncertainty, but she can't really be out there campaigning for another job because she has to run the day-to-day of the studio. Although, you know, 
under the radar she probably is right. campaigning for another job <laughs> but you know this, the fox searchlight people they're just doing what they do until they're told that they shouldn't anymore right. and would they be merged with focus under Comcast, mm-hmm. Focus Features is the prestige yeah. label under Universal. Mm-hmm. Maybe they would. Maybe it would be a separate label. Who knows? So there are a lot of potential ramifications for the award sphere. Another big thing that's happened in the last week, a judge cleared the way for AT&T to buy Time Warner for $85.4 billion. Why was this purchase so controversial and who will it affect most? This was controversial because the Justice Department decided that the merger of these two companies would harm consumers. And the rationale was that it would give AT&T an unfair position in the marketplace if it could control what HBO does or the output of the Turner networks or CNN or Warner Brothers. And, you know. A lot of people think also that Donald Trump just doesn't like CNN and wanted to (laughs) give them a hard time. That probably was a factor. But, you know, this is a vertical merger where it's different companies within a chain. They're not direct competitors. The Disney and Comcast bids for Fox, that would be a horizontal merger. That would take one competitor out of the market. But that wasn't the case with AT&T, and the judge ruled that it was fine for them to buy Time Warner. Now they have the challenge of merging these two companies. And this was really a total victory for media and media mergers, right? I mean, here, a lot of people thought that the judge might require AT&T to divest itself of DirecTV or require Time Warner to divest itself of CNN. In the end, nobody had to really do anything. Yeah, it was a huge victory for AT&T and Time Warner, and it is just opening the floodgates now to this, what we expect will be a wave of mergers and consolidations within the industry over the next couple of years. Like Sony, MGM, Lionsgate, AMC, Networks, Discovery Communications, they've all been rumored, right, to be in the mix here for this Absolutely. Kind of- Various scenarios where different companies might merge. There may be a buyer. Who knows? You know, Apple could buy a studio. YouTube or Google could buy a studio. Some these smaller entities could merge. Everybody's trying to get bigger and to bulk up for this digital future where everybody's a content player. And it, I guess for consumers, the the fear is that there will be higher prices, fewer choices, but we'll have to wait and see. Well, and the creative community yeah. fears that there may be. There's been this boom by Netflix pumping billions of dollars into the content industry, and the fear is that that gravy train is going to end and there will be fewer buyers for shows and movies. Right. One last thing that we've just learned about today is that Apple and Oprah are going into business together. The terms are not yet public, but Oprah will continue to serve as the chairman and CEO of her Discovery-backed cable network OWN, with which she expanded her deal in December all the way through 2025. And Oprah's Harpo Films will own any and all content produced under the Apple partnership. So what exactly is Apple getting here? Well, they're getting Oprah. They're getting a gigantic press release. This is exactly what we've been talking about. There's this gold rush for talent right now, and all these companies are throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at different talent, and this is a crown jewel. To say you're in business with Oprah Winfrey is you know, something that Netflix and Amazon and all the traditional companies can't say, and now Apple can say it. It is unclear what exactly she's going to be doing at Apple as opposed to what she has done on own. And I think 
Discovery as her investor and own is going to benefit because if Harpo is producing these shows, then they will benefit. But, you know, it's a big coup and it's it's another example of just the the war for talent that's going on right now. Which, again, as you started to reference, Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes to Netflix, Greg Berlanti to Warner Brothers TV. These are deals worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Hard to imagine Oprah isn't getting that kind of money as well. Probably more and maybe others to follow. So we'll keep an eye on that. And Matt Bellany, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you. And now for my interview with Claire Danes. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 39-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How she found her way into the business at such a young age, how she landed my so-called life, and how her life and career changed as a result of that short-lived show. What she learned from her subsequent experiences on film sets with the likes of Winona Ryder and Jodie Foster, and why, a year after Romeo and Juliet, she passed on a chance to star opposite Leonardo DiCaprio again in another little film called Titanic. Why she decided to leave the business just as her career was really taking off to study at Yale University. Why she returned to the business before graduating and what it was like for her trying to figure out her place in the business as an adult. Why for nearly a year after the triumph of Temple Grandin, she felt deeply hurt about the lack of quality opportunities coming her way and why at that low point, she decided to become a regular on a TV series again for the first time in more than 16 years. What she has found most fascinating and challenging about playing Carrie Matheson over the last seven years on a show that has been eerily prescient about a lot of real-world problems and solutions, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Claire, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. We always begin on this podcast with some basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Roosevelt Hospital and on the island of Manhattan yes. in New York City in 1979. I grew up on Crosby Street mm-hmm. in Soho. Mm-hmm. My parents were artists. They met at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. Mm-hmm. But when I came around, my dad became was a contractor for 20 years, and my mom ran a toddler school in our. She was a textile designer, mm-hmm. and then she ran a toddler school in our loft called Crosby Kids. Mm-hmm. So I cohabitated basically with a lot of, of one and two year olds. <laughs> there were cubbies in the the entryway right. and things, just raisins everywhere and diluted apple juice in the refrigerator so (laughs) yeah and that's what they did and then I dragged them out to LA when I became this odd kid actor right and they've stayed so now they're in Santa Monica and And you went back (laughs) and I moved back as soon as I could but I stay with them when I'm here nice yeah well the way I read it trying to go back and find things even from when you were just starting out, which was interesting because there's some interview magazine and different things that right. were on you very early on. Yeah. It sounds like it, it really, we owe it to Madonna for you being here. Is that right? <laughs> it's true. I guess she was my initial inspiration. I think she probably was for a lot mm-hmm. of people in my generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw her on television when I was about five and I, it just registered that performing could be one's job Mm -hmm. and that seemed very appealing (laughs) but I I do remember like the television was in my parents room Mm -hmm. and I was I shot up on the bed and I started bouncing on it because I had this you know this epiphany (laughs) (laughs) and it took me a little while to 
kind of differentiate acting specifically from just being on stage um, in a general sense and kind of dancing around. Well, I see you also sounds like you had a very vivid imagination. Did this cause some, you know, as early as six, you had to deal with this a little bit, right? Yeah, no, I knew I wanted to be an actor from from that point on. I had danced from the age of four mm-hmm. on, so... Uh, but what I mean, I guess not to, if it, you know, what I had seen, maybe, right. again, there's some bullshit out there, yeah. but this, did you have, like, imaginary friends or, or things like that? Oh, yeah, I had to go to therapy when I was six because I saw creatures. <laughs> there was a gargoyle that lived in on the pipes, the ceiling of my loft, and, like, <laughs> would make me do things. And I couldn't take a shower alone because I was convinced that, like, demons were coming out of the shower. I mean, it got, it got kind of intense. <laughs> but I, I think that was just a kind of perverse expression of having imaginary yeah. friends. And when I finally saw this therapist, he asked me if... Could I anticipate seeing them? You know, was it was was it something that I had some control over mm-hmm. that I would make manifest in my imagination? And I had to admit that that was probably true. So <laughs> if I could make them appear, I could also make them go away. Right. And I also realized if I was in therapy that may, I might have a problem and that kind of, yeah, that it, that was enough to <laughs> resolve it ultimately. So how did dance, which, as you say, you started at such a young age, how did that give way to acting at also a very young age? Well, I had a really wonderful teacher, Ellen Robbins, who I still see in the neighborhood on occasion, and she's still teaching. I just saw Maggie Gyllenhaal at some photo shoot, mm-hmm. and her daughter goes to her class, oh, really? and Julianne Moore sends her daughter to her class. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. She was great in that, even at the age of four, she took me and every other one of her students, you know, very seriously, and we are we were asked to choreograph our own piece and choose our own music and our own theme and our costume and so i think that was very encouraging mm-hmm. and edifying and and then people would come looking for talent at her you know in the class and mm-hmm. i tend to be kind of hammy and conspicuous <laughs> and would often get chosen so I had some experience performing something like professionally, mm-hmm. La Mama or PS122, you know, these theaters, mostly in the Lower East Side mm-hmm. in New York. And, you know, so had a taste of what that was like and responded very positively yeah. to it. Yeah. Well, how does somebody at 12 get an agent? Well, I started taking acting classes at Lee Strasberg when I was 10 mm-hmm. and loved that. And took it very seriously. <laughs> you were method um, oh, early. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was desperately trying to feel that wind. Right. And then I found a junior high school, a um, new junior high school called PPAS, Professional Performing Arts School. Mm-hmm. And I went in its first year of existence and met some other kids who were working professionally and kind of figured out what an agent was and how to get one. And mm-hmm. My dad had been a photographer, and so we still had a dark room in our loft. And so a woman who was renting it at the time took my headshots, and we sent them out. Mm-hmm. And I got responses and had meetings. And I'd actually done a couple of student films. Mm-hmm. So my best friend at the time, mm-hmm. and my, still my best friend to mm-hmm. this day, Ariel. Mm-hmm. her mom is a choreographer. And Ariel had been a dancer. I danced with her mother and... I guess that's how she was chosen to be in 
a student film and uh-huh. that same director was going to make another movie and was looking for another kid. So Tamar, Ariel's uh-huh. mom, who ended up kind of choreographing a piece that I did in my 20s, uh-huh. suggested me. So she served as my first agent, really. But so I had Was that some... a thing where you, you, Milos Forman was there Yes, yes. Milos Forman was the teacher of the director who was making the student uh-huh. film, this graduate film for Columbia. So he was at my first audition. When Isn't that you were, wild? So you were. I was eleven. 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 But the shape for me. It was. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And that was very outrageously fortunate. But yeah, I did that and and just totally fell in love with uh-huh. the process, and also had something to show uh-huh. to these agents. So a woman called Karen Friedman at Writers and Artists took me on at uh-huh. twelve. And that was it. And I would rollerblade from audition to audition (laughs) and started kind of booking gigs. Well, you must have been an interesting client because I heard the first offer you got was a no from you. Yeah, I guess the first offer I got was for Days of Our Lives. And I turned it down because I was concerned that I was still unformed and malleable as an actor. And I didn't want to develop bad, soapy habits. But that's amazing for a 12-year-old to even think in those terms. Most people would be thrilled they just got a job. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know where I got that chutzpah, but <laughs> yeah. And I kind of lost it along the way, that discernment. Right. But came back. <laughs> Well, so after initially, I guess these first jobs were all in New York. I know there was like a Law and Order episode and there were, of course, you got it. I mean, (laughs) who who doesn't? A pilot for a Dudley Moore sitcom, all Uh this stuff. What is it that led to this really kind of fateful trip in December of 92 out to L.A. for the first time? Because what came of it is actually not what brought you out there, right? I guess I had some experience of coming out to L.A., coming close to getting jobs and going on screen tests, which was a very glamorous thing. And, you know, stretch limousines would arrive on our cobblestone Crosby Street. And my dad would take me out. I remember we kind of landed in some hotel in West Hollywood and kind of walked to some restaurant and realized that we were not. I don't know that we like walked into a, you know, the a very gay strip or something. It was a <laughs> middle-aged man and his tiny daughter. Right. We felt very confused, but yeah, I guess I don't really remember. Actually, my dad. I am 39 years old, and my dad. I was staying with my folks out here in LA. Mm-hmm. Uh, drove me to and from my soul cycle class and <laughs> you get <laughs> old habits that yeah. Hard, yeah. and as he was driving me home he said oh yeah that's where you auditioned for my so-called life wow and i was like oh right oh right well the reason I'm, what i'm what i'm yeah. driving at is that and maybe this is incorrect but what i read was that the audition for my so-called life was actually just sort of an add-on when in fact you had come out here because spielberg wanted to screen test you for schindler's list I don't think that's right. I don't remember the circumstances of my auditioning for my so-called life. I think it was probably like those screen tests. It probably was called out because I had auditioned in New York in a way that was convincing. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I could be getting this wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see Winnie Holtzman for lunch yeah. tomorrow. Um, <laughs> she might have a clear memory of the, it. The She's the writer, writer who, of, of, sort of the alter of ego, right? Of your yeah, character. exactly, exactly. So we're still very close, but she might recall it in greater detail. But Spielberg did watch you he for the. He did, he did. But I auditioned for that on tape. I okay. think in New York. Remember working on my Polish accent for that, but I kept being told I was the spirit of the movie, the spirit of the movie, and basically I was like kind of a glorified extra. And they weren't going to pay for 
a tutor and I didn't want to that be. That was the issue. That was the issue. And just if I had it correct here, it was to play the maid of the Ray Fiennes character. The, no. No? I would think it was like the girl in the red coat or something. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I think well, it was like not that would have been a real issue. role yeah. or something like right, that. Right, right, yeah. right. Well, okay. So anyway, you end up at the audition for My So-Called Life, which I guess we should also note was the team that was coming off of 30-something, right? Right. Ed Zwick and Marshall Hershkowitz. Yeah. yeah. And they'd been impressed from what I saw with your Law & Order episode, because what, what else did they have to go on at that point? <laughs> so it basically came down to Alicia Silverstone, who yeah. was three years older than you, and yeah. you. Yeah. And it would have been easier to go with Alicia Silverstone, right? Because I guess hours that you can work with an actress. Yeah, I think I was probably a real hindrance in that respect. Yeah, I was 13, 13. when I did the pilot. And child labor laws are, are pretty strict <laughs> right. for a good reason. But yeah, no, so what do you remember they took about that, that liability on. About that audition? Yeah. I don't remember much. I remember just loving the script so much. It was like the diary entry of my dreams, you know? <laughs> and it was obviously a good fit, you know? And I really, I remember meeting Ed and Marshall and Winnie, and they were all really kind, kind of like my parents' friends, mm-hmm, kind of, mm-hmm. you know? They seemed familiar. And yeah, I'm just so glad that they took that risk mm-hmm. on me. Yeah. Well, we should state for anyone who did not have the privilege of living through those days this was 94 to 95 the show was on you were playing angela chase this girl who's dealing with all kinds of crap in high school (laughs) you had not yet even been to high school yourself no not when i shot the pilot but you'd had it sounds like your own share of drama right right three right i'd been to three junior highs yeah why was that i went to ppas and so ppas went from it added a high school onto its junior high school program really quickly and it just kind of needed to meet a certain quota and it was not so discriminating when it came to you know choosing the kids so it was like LaGuardia rejects and it just was in a kind of going through some growing pains and so suddenly it wasn't the best school for me Mm -hmm. and then I moved to the lab school and I guess was there was there three junior highs? Maybe it was just those two. Mm-hmm. The lab school where I was in the same class with Marina Baccarin, who I would find That's again crazy. in Homeland and is one of my closest friends now. So you guys knew each other at that time? Yeah. Oh, my God. We went God. to junior high school together. Wow. We're tortured by the same girl. I read about it. So it was really like a bad bully of a girl? There were three bullies, yes, mm-hmm. that I kept re-encountering. One in sixth grade, which I guess that was maybe the th- that was the. Th- that was the other junior high, you know, mm-hmm. it's cuspy. So, and then one again who at PPS and then another one at the lab school. But there was this kind of archetypical person who just seemed to devote their life to making me really unhappy. It was you specifically or just generally being? Uh, generally being awful. Yeah. I mean, Marina and I still talk about this one person. My friend Arielle and I still talk about mm-hmm. this other person, mm-hmm. but but I I think because I kept my mom's response to that challenge was to just put me in another school, but mm-hmm. that I kept being the new girl and kept being vulnerable for that reason. And I think I just wasn't really good at junior high in that I was like a bull in a china shop with mm-hmm. all of those really rigid rules mm-hmm. that especially girls are supposed to observe mm-hmm. and conform to and I, I and I didn't get the memo that you were supposed to dumb down and <laughs> I was just you know aggressively nerdy and 
an engaged oh, student geez. to use a euphemism right, right? but right. I was just like that girl with her hand eternally up and I think I was probably pretty obnoxious I got slapped around for it I think but my again Arielle who I always cite she only allowed herself to answer three questions per class and she was very disciplined about remaining just invisible enough and you know ended up being valedictorian but nobody would ever know there was not a trace and I was not so discreet I guess I guess it gave you rich material for when you had to now play yeah, this yeah you know? yeah and I just thought it was horrible I, I thought it was horrible and you know and then Winnie just handed me this mic mm. you know she was like my Sarano de Bergiac kind of <laughs> and I, I got to vent all right. of my frustrations in the most perfectly articulated way so that was a massive gift and I had a lot of a lot of rage <laughs> to release then I was sort of ironically pulled from school I was really good for me to go back to college and mm-hmm. learn that the girls especially do evolve Grow into yeah. you know infinitely better versions of their junior high school selves well a few years before that though so when you first now land this part it was obvious it must have been it felt like a, the biggest deal by far yet how did your life practically change well I did the pilot and then it did not get picked up so I went back to high school I and but I had been working a little bit at this time so I made my own money and I kind of Mm -hmm. sent myself to a big fancy private school (laughs) so I went to Dalton for for a semester and then my so-called life did get picked up what changed I don't know actually I guess they revisited it and I don't remember but that was confusing Mm -hmm. I, I guess in a great way but so mid you know, in the middle of my freshman year, I then went out to LA. Is that tough to be picked up where we left off? Your friends and all that, or you remember it being exciting or We were so confused. (laughs) I mean it kind of worked well for our family in that we were at coincidentally sort of at a natural fissure and my dad's business was ending. My mom was kind of ready to move on Mm -hmm. from her toddler school. My brother is seven years older and was at college at this point. So we were kind of liberated in a way and, and available to this experience. But, you know, so we landed in LA very disoriented and confused. And it was literally the day after that massive earthquake. Oh, Northridge. Of, yeah, oh, Northridge earthquake. So we missed the massive rumble but we were there for all of the aftershocks and everybody was ashen you know everybody was just in this you know had been traumatized and we showed up and it was just it was too apt of a metaphor for you know we were already felt that way and then the earth was literally shaking so (laughs) i remember we were so naive it was was, and we just kind of let it wash over us and i think we were so lucky to have stepped into such a wonderful culture Mm -hmm. you know a a version of Mm -hmm. hollywood with ed and marshall and winnie you know who were so kind of responsible and upstanding and but when you you stepped out of that bubble once the show got ordered to series and it was going and finding, you know, maybe not a massive audience, but the people who watched it loved it. How did your actual day-to-day life outside of the bubble of making it change? Because, I mean, yeah, today with smartphones and stuff, it gets crazy, but I'm sure it was not easy at the time. I guess. I mean, I was still going 
to high school. I'm barely, I was mostly tutored. Okay. You know, so I I started working a lot after that, Mm -hmm. you know, it got canceled and then I did quite a few movies. So kind of hopped from set to set and would occasionally drop into the one school that would accept me here in Mm -hmm. Los Angeles was Lise Francais. You know, in New York, a kid actor seemed kind of exotic and impressive, but here in LA, we're a dime (laughs) a dozen and every school knows how much of a pain in the ass we are and how disruptive we are. (laughs) So the really good school, whatever. So, but it was just so weird. I felt a little freakish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were enjoying the the job aspect of it enough. I to was make just it... working all the time. Yeah. I didn't have much of a life, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I don't think I really felt the impact of suddenly being famous. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was mostly on set mm-hmm. where that's not so meaningful or relevant, you know? Well, with my so-called life, I mean, I, I want to try to see if you've figured out why it only was there for 19 episodes over nine months or whatever it was. I think about that. I know ABC, I think, was putting it on at eight o'clock and up against at one point I saw, I think it was Mad About You. At one point it was the first season of Friends. That can't have, you know. I have no idea. idea. I think. Were you shielded from all the, did you know that the show was in trouble? Yeah, I knew that the show was in trouble, but yeah, I think it was. One of my favorite quotes is that David Bowie quote, it doesn't matter who does it first, it matters who does it second. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was probably just a little too ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of shows that followed it that really did kind mm-hmm. of land that were very, I think, were heavily influenced mm-hmm. by it. For sure. So, uh, you know, it was a provocative show. It was, I mean, it was kind of amazing that it was, that it ever aired on the Mm first, in the first place. A young female perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And well, it definitely, I mean, I'm sure you hear it every day that it really touched people who did watch it. And I don't know if it was maybe the, the, the voiceover aspect where people actually felt you were almost confiding in them or whatever it was. But yeah, I'm amazed by its endurance and, and the extent of its afterlife. I'm amazed and moved by it, mm-hmm. really. I'm, people who grew up with the show are now sharing it with their teenagers, mm-hmm. and it has proven to you know continue to speak to current generations and yeah. it's it's kind of timeless which is you know what uh, how how lucky are we to have yeah. made something like that that's always the the hope well i wonder if we can tick off some of the projects you did between the cancellation and then going off to college just a couple of notes about each of them just to see if you have anything you want to add little women i think was Maybe the first one after. That was the first, yeah. And it's you and Winona, right? Uh-huh. You're the dying, the slowly dying sister. Beth. But people... Saintly this, Beth. Yeah, Saintly Beth. <laughs> and I mean, the, the scene, though, that I saw, if you go back and look at reviews and things that were written at the time, people, the, the scene where you realize you've been given this piano for mm. Christmas, the people were very impressed with how you handled that. Yeah, I remember talking to my dad about that scene at the time, kind of wrestling with it, and trying to think about how I would play it. And I guess I, my dad was around mm-hmm. and while well, I was doing my homework with mm-hmm. the scene. Yeah. And I guess maybe, I don't, I, I don't remember what I asked exactly. Something I guess, why does she have this response mm-hmm. to this gift? And my dad said, she realizes that she's loved. Mm-hmm. 
and makes me cry. I think it uh-huh. was just so right. And that really helped. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. My dad directed me in that moment. Yeah. So I remember that. That That's my dad's fault. That's great. Well, the, <laughs> a year later, 95, Home for the Holidays, you were Holly Hunter's teenage daughter. Mm-hmm. And I guess the big thing here was the director was Jodie Foster. Right? Yeah. I remember going to meet her for the first time to audition. And I just come from set from a so-called life and I was apologizing because I had my face full of a face full of makeup and was sort of embarrassed by that and she said that's so funny I used to be so embarrassed by that too <laughs> and she also went to Louise Francais and I think really? that she just there was a clear parallel mm-hmm. there and she was such a cool impressive person mm-hmm. and a, a kind of wonderful mentor mm-hmm. to have had in that moment the year after that, 96, a uh, little small part, Juliet, in Romeo and Juliet yeah. for Baz Luhrmann. Leonardo DiCaprio, who I believe was cast before you, uh-huh. has said in one of these interviews back then that you were the only actress who looked at him in the eyes during the audition. Do you do you remember him saying that? I guess he was intimidating even pre-Titanic. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that was such an, such an amazing experience. I mean, just Baz is a really unusual filmmaker Mm -hmm. usually gifted Mm -hmm. you know a a real visionary Mm -hmm. uh, an auteur there aren't many of those on the planet and his interpretation of that story was so radical and so beautiful and was really all about making it grounded and accessible and clear and I happened to be an actor I guess who could help serve that yeah. so but doing yeah. like the balcony scene at 16 or something that must have been intimidating yeah i guess so it was it was and um, but i i it was fantastic mm-hmm. i mean the writing was pretty good <laughs> <laughs> but as a result of that movie now i guess you were seen for the first time as a movie star too mm-hmm. right i mean mm-hmm. this put put you on the map internationally i read that maybe as a result of that you were the first choice for the part of Rose in Titanic a year later. Is that true? I don't know if that's true. I mean, yes, I was definitely in contention for that, but I just filmed Romeo and Juliet in Mexico City. We were going to, Titanic was going to be filmed in Mexico again for Mm -hmm. another five months Mm -hmm. or something with Leo, Mm -hmm. another romantic epic. I think I just couldn't repeat that experience so immediately. Mm-hmm. And I think I wanted I wanted to you know experiment with maybe different styles yeah. of storytelling and you or are... different locations. I don't know. Do I re- regret that? No, I, I don't. No, uh, it would have been a totally different career. Yeah. I remember when cuz Leo and I had the same manager at the time mm-hmm. and I was on a balcony, I remember. And he was kind of riding in a red convertible. Yeah. 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 He rented some car. His name Mm -hmm. was Zippy Car. (laughs) And he threw his hands up and he said, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. You know, he just agreed to do the Titanic. (laughs) And I was like, you know, good for you. But I think it was one of those choices, Mm -hmm. you know, that I think he knew what it would mean for him. Mm -hmm. And maybe there was part of me that knew what it might mean for me. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I was ready. Yeah. And I mean, even... Kate Winslet, who ended up playing the part, has said that I think for a number of years it, it made it impossible to do certain things that she wanted to do. Right. It's so. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I mean, 
not to be trite, but mm-hmm. I think I don't really think everything happens for a reason, but that was not my course. Yeah. I think I just kind of had more growing up to do. Yeah. And if you had done that, you would not have been able to do a year after Romeo and Juliet, the Rainmaker for Coppola. Right. Right. I, yeah, I, I did the Rainmaker. I did a little turn on U-turn and with, yeah. with Oliver Stone and I don't know zipped around was there ever this one i i wanted to check also because i don't know if it's correct but there were some things that were saying you were in the mix for the part that ended up being the oscar winner for angelina in girl interrupted did you go out for that one no winona i knew winona from our time on little women together and she was working on girl interrupted and gave me the book Mm -hmm. i think she was interested in me being a part of it Mm -hmm. but no it wasn't for angelina's role all right so was it a tough call like what went into the decision not long after that i think to to go off to college and i mean the, the thing i we've talked to a number of people who had started young like you and the thing that seems to keep coming up is like on the one hand people are a little apprehensive because they don't know if they'll be able to return like there's some fear that yeah I I I think I had some of that Mm -hmm. but I had always wanted to go to college Mm -hmm. and I think I was a little a little confused Mm -hmm. about how to be a movie star Mm -hmm. and an actor Mm -hmm. and I as I said before I need I had a lot of growing up to do and I needed to kind of hang out with kids my own age Mm -hmm. and explore my identity in a protected environment. Was Jodie Foster a factor here? Because she had gone to I think Jodie definitely encouraged me Mm -hmm. to do, to go to school, but so she was an influencer, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but she wasn't the the sole reason why I went by any means. My grandfather had been the Dean of Art and Architecture at Yale, Mm -hmm. so that kind of hovered in my imagination, Mm -hmm. and I was just really keen. I was really desperate to give that to myself. Mm. And I'm, I'm really glad I did. I yeah. mean, I, and I, I didn't finish. <laughs> Two years seemed yeah. sufficient. Yeah. Like I kind of, you got what you needed. Out I of got it. what I needed out yeah. of it. Yeah. Were you able to have a kind of normal college experience while totally. you were there? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm and, from New Haven. People are, yeah, are you? Yeah, oh. I, I feel like, uh, oh yeah, I noticed your cell phone. Yeah, is yeah, it, right. is New Haven. yeah. No, I mean, I also, had just bought a loft Mm -hmm. that I was renovating. And so I would go home on the weekends to oversee the renovation of my loft. And, you know, there was that weirdness too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I felt like a normal student, but I probably wasn't and was very involved with my boyfriend at the time (laughs) and kind of felt married. And Mm -hmm. I I really felt like a mature student in some ways. Like I was going back to school and I had taken a year off. Actually, I took a, gave myself a gap year. Mm -hmm. I made broke down palace during that Mm -hmm. year. So I was even literally a year older, but I'd had, I'd done a lot Mm -hmm. already. So I was really there to learn. I was very nerdy, even (laughs) at Yale. And you were totally focused on, there was no acting in between when you were there, you were there. I was there. When I was there, I was there. I thought that I would be, I would make a movie during my summers. Mm -hmm. That was unrealistic. I kind of forgot failed to realize how much work goes into getting work and mm-hmm. being at Yale was entirely consuming right. and I wasn't I wasn't available to take meetings right. or read scripts or anything and movies are not you know they're fluid and 
messy and the start date would be July 4th and then it would drift into September and you know so it, it just that up. wasn't so tenable I mean but it was three it was a good three years mm-hmm. when I I, I really didn't do anything not even totally intentionally mm-hmm. I'd hoped to pepper that time with some mm-hmm. some involvement but it just didn't work out and for whatever reason and actually I think that was probably fine and yeah. more than fine I think it was valuable does any part of you ever think maybe I'll finish this someday go back and finish the Degree? Nah. No. But, uh, but <laughs> I think you're getting worse. I, I, I know what college is, right. and I'm really glad for that. Right. And I kind of got the fundamentals yeah. from it, and didn't really need more for myself. But it was funny going back to work as an actor mm-hmm. because I was approaching it like a Yale student or something, and I kind of forgot mm-hmm. how kind of intuitive and visceral an exercise it is. So I was overthinking it for a while there. Well, let's talk about the, I guess, the few years after you came back to acting, the projects preceding, I think, like what has to be a big turning point in your mind. I, I Maybe not, it didn't have the immediate effect of being a turning point, but Temple Grandin. Uh-huh. So before that, yeah. the hours you're working with Meryl, I know she'd been like your hero totally, forever, right? Totally. I mean, yeah, it was a very modest role, but it was so much fun to get to play with her. Even. And a movie that everybody saw because it was a Best Picture nominee yeah, and all that. Yeah. The hours was 2002, Stage Beauty 2004, uh-huh. about... Basically, the rise of female actors Mm -hmm. in England, 17th century. Uh I have read two conflicting statements that I wonder if you can sort out. You've said, on the one hand, it was one of your favorite parts, but on the other hand, it was very frustrating because you got to basically play a bad actor. Oh, yeah. It wasn't frustrating, but it was a l- it was surprisingly scary. Yeah. When I was doing those scenes where I had to act badly, <laughs> I think there was part of me that was nervous about... <laughs> doing that too well. They think you're, uh, you're just bad. Right? Yeah. Okay, 2005, I love this movie, Shop Girl, with Steve Martin. It just felt different than anything else before that, right? That was a real joy. I'd read the book just because I, you know, was curious about mm-hmm. it. That kind of felt like a diamond kind of falling from the sky. Mm-hmm. Steve Martin has been an idol of mine. You know, I'm not alone in this, mm-hmm. but, you know, for, for so long. And I, I thought... It was very brave of him mm-hmm. to tell that story and represent himself in that light mm-hmm. and in that way. And I think it was such a shift in tone for yeah. him. And he was surprisingly vulnerable mm-hmm. within that context. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I felt very privileged to be asked to tell that story with him. Two years after that, 2007, evening, which is significant because you're not only reunited with Merrill, but... From a personal standpoint, I think it was pretty important. Yeah. That movie gave me the rest of my life. Because Hugh Nancy. Yeah. I worked with my husband, who Mm -hmm. was not my husband at the time. Right. But yeah, Michael Cunningham, who wrote Mm -hmm. the screenplay, was our officiant at our wedding and he became a best friend and mm-hmm. Meryl Streep's daughter Mamie yep. Gummer was in the movie and she became a best mm-hmm. friend I mean I really I didn't just get a husband I got <laughs> I got a lot of mm-hmm. very important people yeah. out of that one and it felt quite magical my parents met you know and we shot in Rhode Island <laughs> in Newport my parents met in Rhode Island I he was joking the other day. We, we have to be very careful about <laughs> Cyrus ever stepping foot in going that state. <laughs> <laughs> so things were going along nicely enough with all these, you know, every year or two, a, a, a nice 
generally indie movie, but would you have been content if things just kind of continued as they were going, or were you kind of always craving something like a, a Temple Grandin, which ended up, this is a 2010 HBO movie that I think people looked at you with newfound appreciation after that. Yeah, I, gosh, I remember I was offered that role, which is, it's always surprising when somebody (laughs) offers me anything, but Hugh and I were at the end of a really lavish, indulgent Mediterranean adventure. We had a summer kind of hopping from one outrageously beautiful place to another. We were, yeah, but I, so we, I happened to be in Ischia at the time. There's. This that, film that festival. Film, Pascal. Yeah, Pascal. <laughs> so, yeah, and it was just so, I, I don't know. We, we, neither of us were working that summer, and we were like, right. you know what? Screw it. Let's just, like, have the best time ever. Mm-hmm. And we did. Mm-hmm. It was great. So I get this call to consider this story and this character in, you know, in some five-star hotel and... Italy, you know, <laughs> it was just so discordant mm-hmm. with Temple. And a livestock industry yeah, expert exact, exact, with authenticity. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So it was really hard for me to digest in that particular moment. I had only the faintest sense of her. Then, you know, I had to kind of do some investigating mm-hmm. and kind of figure out who she was before I could think about it more deeply and it was terrifying you know it was absolutely terrifying <laughs> first time playing a living person yeah, real living person yeah. obviously somebody who's got a affliction I guess you could say in a way that it could go wrong if you have Yo, to play gosh. it right I remember we had filmed the movie and I watched what was that movie oh gosh it's so good with Ben Stiller and Robert Downey Jr and it's like what's that movie you know it you know it Robert Downey Jr. does that amazing impression they do that war movie Tropic Thunder Tropic Thunder but and Ben Stiller plays some like autistic person or something Simple Jack I think it was and I was like oh my god did I just do Simple freaking Jack you know like are people gonna see it that way because is it gonna be reduced to that in the public imagination you know I just suddenly had this real panic well do you remember what what Downey's line is in there, I think. Or what? What is it? it? It's not. It's not very PC. But like, you you never go full retard. retard. Well, a Temple. I remember when I I met with Temple. I spent a day with her and assailed her with questions. Mm-hmm. She was so lovely and gracious and totally open to all of them. But she, you know, she admitted that when she heard that I was doing the role mm-hmm. she didn't have any sense of me and so she looked me up online and found all of this vitriol as one does when they go searching for anything online and she said people were pretty suspicious she was she said that somebody had said i don't think claire danes can play a retard oh and she laughed she thought that was so <laughs> funny but yeah so oh so yeah i don't know but i mean if you had her confidence what else really like did you need i guess that's true i mean i i don't know if she, she, i think her confidence grew over time <laughs> but it was uncharted and it was and it was risky because mm-hmm. again our intentions could have been very garbled or misconstrued or miscommunicated well you had an interesting and this is this is crazy i don't know if it's it's got a i assume it's a coincidence but like just shortly before you did this 
your husband had done Adam yes, about Asperger's. Yeah. Yes, no, uh, he, a year prior to my doing Temple, he'd also played a person on the Spectrum. Mm-hmm. We were both on the cover of Spectrum magazine. <laughs> in the same in year. The same what year. other couple can say that? Yeah. <laughs> but no, that was really helpful. Mm-hmm. And all the required reading was already in on our house. bookshelves. <laughs> and I would call him when I, you know, how did you do your stims, you know, self-stimulation mm-hmm. or, you know, what did you do for your panic attack? And it was very handy. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Well, so for Temple Grandin, you got just, I think at that, up to that point, as great notices and responses, anything you'd done, Golden Globe, Emmy, all of this. But I understand that the next couple of years when you would think you're going to get a huge bounce out of something like that were actually not satisfying for you. What happened? Well, it's not something that you can be typecast as very easily, right? right? Like, let's get her for the next temple. (laughs) So I don't know. But it's true. It was an awkward period because I felt so stretched and so revived and robust as a performer. Uh You know, I felt very alive Uh and ready. And there just wasn't anything worthy of attaching myself Uh to. And also, after having met that challenge mm-hmm. creatively I just had less patience for the well, girlfriend role yeah, yeah. you know and I just couldn't bring myself to do something two-dimensional mm-hmm. so I chose not to do anything at all which was tough it was kind of crushing after well, a certain point I had read at one point did you actually like with any degree of seriousness, consider stopping acting altogether? No, I never considered stopping acting, but I was just deeply frustrated. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, 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 it's hard being an actor because we're dependent on so many other forces and factors and players. You know, we need, we need original material to mm-hmm. exist and we need a producer to put those pieces together and we need a director to hire. You know, it's like <laughs> we don't have a, so, you know, my, I think in these terms because my parents are artists, but you know, we don't have a studio that we can go into every day. That's one reason why I love television mm-hmm. is because I kind of do have the equivalent of a studio. Yeah. You know, I have a day job. Yeah. I, I love the regularity of it, the routine of it, the volume of it. I love just getting to do it over and over again. It's kind of the nice thing about being a lead on a project mm-hmm. is that it, you kind of are afforded the time and opportunity to really relax into every moment. If you have a smaller role, each line becomes impossibly precious Mm -hmm. and then Mm self-consciousness kicks in. And, you know, so I just, I like being in a flow. Yeah. Well, it's ironic that right when you were going through this period, when you were saying, you know, post Temple Grandin, not feeling great about things, apparently it was the day after Temple Grandin aired, obviously unbeknownst to you, that Alex Gonza and Howard Gordon, who had done, who were coming off of 24, started writing Homeland the day after Temple Grandin. Literally, oh, is that true? They've said, and were writing it with you in mind. They were going to originally call the character Claire. Claire. Yes, I knew that, but also that. I mean, that is a credit to their imaginations and their vision, <laughs> man, that they could go from Temple to Carrie Matheson, you know, that they could right. see some kind of thread there or because uh, I couldn't, you know, when they say that they wrote this character with me in mind, I, I still don't know how to take that to this day. <laughs> like, mm, I don't know if that's, yeah, it's exactly flattering, but <laughs> Well, yeah. so how did they 
initially reach out to you about? Obviously, it's the pilot first, but how did that come about? And when they when it did, were you already in the headspace of you know television going back to series television might not be a bad thing? Well, that shift was starting to happen already, mm-hmm. where television was starting to become a place where you could tell, you know, surprisingly sophisticated yeah. stories. You know, Sopranos had been on, The Wire had been on, their precedents had been set. Mm-hmm. So it felt like there was opportunity there. But it was still kind of still nascent, I think. The, there was still some kind of stigma attached to television, right. it, although that was softening. And But yeah, I was really intimidated by it. I read the pilot. It was you know, undeniably great and incredibly arresting. And as soon as I finished it, I wanted to read the next Mm -hmm. one. I just didn't know if I wanted to do the next one, you know, for yeah, (laughs) because it was so much and she was under such duress and didn't seem like she would ever not be. And I was nervous too about it talking so directly to, you know, what's happening in contemporary politics. Mm-hmm. And and at that point, it was really so much about 9-11, yeah. and that was still quite raw, and I, I wasn't sure if it was teetering on something that, on exploitation. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of concerns and questions, and, and I, but I met with Alex and Howard, and they're again, kind of like Ed and Marshall mm-hmm. and Winnie, you know, such decent thoughtful, smart, responsible people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just wouldn't be jerks about it. You did have a an alternative offer at the time, right? Oh, yeah. I guess there was a chance of maybe playing the secretary to Leo's movie. What was J. Edgar J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. And I just thought, do I want to be the secretary or do I want to be the Hoover? I want to be <laughs> I want to be the right. vacuum cleaner. Right. Okay, so one of the things that I had wondered before I started prepping for this, I had known vaguely that when you were at Yale, I think you were studying psychology, right? I was. So I was thinking always maybe part of what drew you to Carrie was the focus on Absolutely, absolutely, it was. Yeah, that's always been. But not initially, right? Because it wasn't in the pilot. It, it what? Me? I can't rem- actually remember. Oh God! Only I, because I, the... I, I keep saying that. I can't remember. I can't. We're no, going way back here. But um. <laughs> well, this might prod something just because yeah. I read that it actually. So in the pilot, you know, she was intense or whatever, but she right. wasn't bipolar. And then that was Showtime's suggestion. Yeah. Just and did that make it more or less appealing to you to now be? Playing? I think it made it more appealing. Yeah, for sure. I've always been really curious about pathology, mm-hmm. and yeah, I think if I w- wasn't an actor, I would be in psychology somehow. Mm-hmm. My best friend is Ar- mm-hmm. Ariel. Yeah, yeah. Is, a, is a therapist, you know. Take a shot. I have a lot of <laughs> <laughs> oh. And we talk about our work in similar yeah. ways, actually. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So the show. Pilot gets picked up. You now know that you're going to have to get up to fully up to speed on what it means to be bipolar and all of this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Do it. First season starts. And it was a phenomenon right off the bat. I think it was the highest rated debut of a Showtime drama in eight years. And they have had a lot of good shows. Did you realize during the making of it, though, that, you know, something special was going on? I think the, the, those first seasons, the chemistry with you and Damien was so interesting, Damien Lewis. So I guess I just wonder, like, did you have to see it to believe it that it was really good, or did you know doing it? Mm, 
I thought it was interesting, uh-huh. but my opinions and my impressions of what I'm making do not necessarily correlate <laughs> with everybody else's. Right. But as I said, when I read that pilot, I was propelled further, you know, and I thought, I, I want more. Uh-huh. So I knew, you know, they... Alex and Howard can write a cliffhanger mm-hmm. like no freaking other. So I knew it had a, a chance of being popular. I think nobody could anticipate how popular. And I remember being, you know, really frightened and unsure, as we always are whenever we first start putting something together. And uh, Michael Cuesta was our original producing director, and he was reassuring me. And I remember he, he had done, he'd worked on. Dexter mm-hmm. when it, it first started mm-hmm. and he was saying Michael C. Hall was also you know outrageously insecure in assembling that role and mm-hmm. I thought oh good okay good 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 <laughs> I took real refuge in that right. so well you guys became the only Showtime show other than Dexter to ever get nominated for best drama series and at that first year you won Damien won and the show won yeah. right like yeah. that that is a pretty unbelievable oh, it endorsement. it was totally, it was, it was crazy. Crazy, great, mm-hmm. but that is rare and wonderful. Yeah. And, you know. What's amazing is people would watch the show, I think, sometimes and, and think that is a pretty far-fetched plot line. And then five minutes later, the real world happens, and oh, yeah. whether it's Bo Bergdahl, the Brody-esque situation there, and attacks in Europe, and obviously a president who doesn't, necessarily coexist well with others <laughs> very diplomatically Thank stated you. i'm trying you yeah know, i really don't look at don't look at my twitter it's not so but it was interesting because what was the response in the intel community and even from certain presidents because they were among your biggest fans Right. Well, that's the best endorsement one could hope for. Yeah, yeah I credit our, our writers and, and primarily Alex, who is our intrepid leader for being so thorough in their research. And I mean, they do let their imaginations roam and obviously they take license, you know, creative license, poetic license, but sometimes they are surprised by their prescience, you know, the prescience of the show. And, you know, some of it is intentional and, and by design and other moments are just seem to come from some deeper, darker, <laughs> more mysterious place. Well, and you would, though, each season, you guys, you included, would kind of do some background chats. We have spy camp. Spy, we have spy camp. camp. <laughs> Every year, one of our writers, Henry Bromell, who, who died a number of years ago now, but his dad was in the CIA, mm-hmm. and his cousin was a mentee of his father's and was also in the CIA and had retired fairly recently when we first uh-huh. met him and in his retirement put together this week long event we go to a club uh-huh. like a spy club in Georgetown <laughs> we park ourselves there wow. for days in a row from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. and just interview people in the intelligence community and journalism and in politics. It's a pretty broad swathe of people. We Skyped with Snowden one year. Wow. Yeah. And we asked them what they're most frightened of, what's most relevant, what they think is going to manifest in a year's time when the show airs. And that's really where the writers do their deep diving and find their raw material and and have their imagination sparked. So that's that's, that's a huge resource. Yeah. yeah. And what did Presidents Obama and Clinton have to say to you about the show? 
Well, Obama apparently was a big fan. I, I don't know if he still is watching. <laughs> Maybe he has a little more time to right, watch. Right. But well, he was saying he was doing it in the Oval Office. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I mean, oh boy, cavelling heart. Yeah. But I don't think Trump is watching. Yeah, I don't I think don't, he's such a he's fan. He's too busy with Fox News. Yeah. Okay, so not many shows kill off one of their main characters so early on and still survive and thrive. When that was introduced, when you saw that was going to happen, were you concern? That was always the intention. Brody was supposed to, to die at the end of the second season, mm-hmm. but the relationship proved to be so rich and, mm-hmm. you know, and we all loved Damien, so nobody wanted that to happen. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, that was the that was the original plan and the show kind of needed to grow through that. Did you fear though any part of you that this could be a problem? You know, I have real confidence in, yeah. in Alex and his team. So I think it was it was it was handled yeah. well, and it was interesting. I mean, to to have Carrie suffer that loss, yeah. you know, and they took that seriously. I think they dove into it, even you know, in his absence, yeah. he was still very present. And there were other, and there's always other people there. Yeah, yeah. so there. Yeah, you had other heart heartache. So. No show pleases everyone, and there were certain seasons that were more well-received than others. Now, though, this most recent season, people are, like, responding as if it was a rebirth or something that's had such a great response. Did you feel that doing it? What do you well, make Well, again, of? I mean, I'm, oh, I'm delighted. Yeah. I'm relieved. But, you know, I guess our third season was the one that was most knocked. Mm-hmm. And I quite liked that season. <laughs> I liked a lot yeah, about that yeah, season. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not always in sync with the audience in their response to the show. But I'm so grateful that people are still watching mm-hmm. and that everybody involved in the show is as motivated to, you know, work at this level. None of us have become complacent or fallen into bad stale habits Mm -hmm. but I think the nature of the show is such that we're in a different location every year we're working with a different crew there are new cast members introduced so there's a lot of creative circulation and it's exhausting Mm -hmm. because we kind of have to reinvent the wheel every year but it also means that there's something for us to actively reach for and explore and so we're in a state of growth, you yeah. know, so, and I think that's unusual. Yeah. Last three very brief things, if mm-hmm. I can. Sure. Number one, this is silly, but I just have to ask you for your thoughts. There's a fascination that people have with what is called, quote unquote, Carrie's cry face. Oh, yeah. I know that's like a thing. What do you? But I've had my cry face has been. Th- I remember in my, in my so-called life when you wrote a scene where Rayanne makes fun of Angela's cry face, really? which is. You know, just Claire's cry face. But yeah, I don't know. It's, I guess it's a thing. This is not something that I have worked on. No, this is just how I cry, folks. I have no no issues with it myself. Yeah. It's expressive, I guess. No. I blame my dad. He has very rubbery features. (laughs) I think I inherited. Number two, are you still having fun doing it? I mean, it's now eight years in. Oh my God, yeah. yeah. It's so many years in. I am. I love our team. I love our little culture. Mm-hmm. It feels like I'm in a company mm-hmm. and I do adore that aspect of it. And she's really dynamic, this yeah. Carrie person. <laughs> so she doesn't get boring. No. And the writers, I think, do an incredible job of 
turning over all these other rocks within her. So yeah, so far so, so good. And in terms of my energy level. Yeah. Even while pregnant. Yes. Twice now. Yeah. Yeah. Twice. I mean, how do you do that? It's a pretty physical part. It's not easy. Yeah. It's not easy. I mean, last, last time I was pregnant, I was filming until I was eight months, but I didn't, I wasn't filming during my first trimester. This time I was filming during my first trimester, Uh which is a special kind of hell. Um, (laughs) so yeah, I don't know. You just, when there isn't a choice. Yeah. They power through. Mm -hmm. Last one is we have heard that the show is ending after next season, the eighth. How do you hope this is sort of multi-pronged here, but how do you hope Carrie's story will end personally? How do you feel about this chapter of your story coming to an end? And do you have any idea of what your life is going to look like after Homeland? You're leaving it with a very different place in the industry, I think, than you went into it with. Yeah. Well, firstly, I have to kind of qualify that mm-hmm. and say that nobody's entirely sure if it is the final season. Mm-hmm. I, we think it is, mm-hmm. but that's not you know, an absolute mm-hmm. certainty. So there's that, mm-hmm. but it will end eventually. <laughs> and I don't know, it's really hard for me to visualize. I've emerged with maybe a different kind of status mm-hmm. in the industry, but I've also arrived at a different place in my life and that I will have two children, mm-hmm. one of whom is now five and going to big boy school <laughs> and has an agenda of his own right. and that I kind of have to revolve around. Right. So I think those are a new set of demands, but I don't know. I can't say for sure. Probably take a little time, right? I'm going to need a minute. Yeah. I'm going to need Go a to minute to, yeah, yeah, to just reorient myself. Right. And right. it's going to be a big loss. I mean, I made this movie, A Kid Like Jake with Jim yeah. Parsons and that we shot last summer and Obviously, he does. He's working on the Big Bang Theory. Uh-huh. He has for a very long time. Uh-huh. They couldn't be more antithetical in some ways. Those shows, but the experience of being held by an institution uh-huh. is the same. And we were both talking about how we're probably going to have to go to therapy or something. <laughs> you know, take formal active right. measures to cope with that transition yeah. because it'll be such a huge shift. But I feel, you know, endlessly fortunate that I've had a chance to work on such quality material, you know, so consistently and form these working and personal relationships with this, this group of people. I mean, it's corny, but it really does. It's this massive privilege. I don't take it for granted. You guys do a great job and I so appreciate you doing this. Oh, thank you. Congrats on the impending birth. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.